Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading. This is the podcast where we have two CEOs in conversation exchanging notes on how they work and how their career has panned out so far. My name is James Ashton. I'm a financial journalist. Some of the CEOs who are featured in this series from business, charity, the arts, technology and healthcare also appear in my book, The Nine Types of Leader, which is available to order. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockteninternational.com gb insight. And so to this episode. First up, we have Javid Khan. He's the chief executive of Bernardo's, one of the UK's largest charities that supports over 350,000 vulnerable children, their families and carers every year. It's been having a tough time, however, because of the impact of COVID, which has increased demand for its services, but also hit fundraising efforts. Javid is joined by Simon Levine. He's the global co-CEO of the law firm DLA Piper, whose lawyers are based in more than 40 countries around the world and revenues last year passed £2 billion. Levine is a media lawyer by background. He's advised pop stars and film studio heads in a 30-year career. I began the conversation asking Javid for his reflections on 2020. Well, gosh, reflecting on 2020, you know, it seems a bit of a leadership cliche at the moment to say that the challenge we are still living through is the toughest in in our careers, and, and I'm no exception to that. I don't think there's anything that has prepared me to cope with what we are dealing with at the moment. You know, the COVID pandemic has um, brought so many challenges and such a level of complexity that every ounce of leadership resilience is being tested. So in the Bernardo's world, you know, we're the largest children's charity in the UK, but with that comes a huge responsibility to respond to the needs of the the most vulnerable children and young people, their families and carers uh, in society. And we found that really hard because from the moment of the first lockdown, uh, we started losing literally eight million pounds a month because all of our 700 retail stores had to close, all of our face-to-face fundraising ceased, and there is no way in recovering that lost income. And yet, what we've seen is a huge spike in demand. The level of vulnerability, the complexity of vulnerability for children in need has skyrocketed, and we haven't had the resources to meet that demand. And that really hurts anybody who does work like this because we, you know, we come into this field because we believe in the cause. And yet when you don't have the resources to respond to the need, there are children in this country who are suffering extreme mental health issues as a result of COVID. They are living in families that are experiencing domestic abuse. There are families who are having to decide between paying their heating bills or providing food for children, you know, food banks and so on and so on and so on. So the list is endless. The challenges are enormous for this country. And yet COVID has exacerbated the inequalities that already existed. Now, how does a leader cope with that? That's the challenge that I faced, really digging deep into my own resilience, relying on uh, some fantastic colleagues to, to get us through this as best as we can. But uh, my, you know, my fear is we're not doing enough for the most vulnerable. And how do you approach it? Because you've described how the money comes in and where you spend that money on these you know, vital services, helping kids who are suffering from violence and, and abuse and so on. Do you rip up the plan you've got or do you try and adapt you know, to these circumstances? So the first thing that we had to do was that uh, because you know, we had about 3,000 staff, give or take, that had to go on furlough straight away. Uh, and that was largely back office support, uh, retail stores closed and so on, all of that. But the, the frontline colleagues, which are around 4,000 people who deliver services directly to children, about 500 of those continued to deliver frontline, you know, and risk to themselves. You know, they're staying away from their families and their homes because they were running services that if they closed, those children wouldn't have a bed to sleep in that night. You know, their residential care facilities, special schools, and so on. So they carried on working, and we didn't have enough protective equipment at that time. You know, it's got a lot better now, but so there were huge risks. But we carried on doing it, and huge credit to those colleagues. Another three and a half thousand or so switched to working from home, and so had to be digitally enabled. 
So we switched to using, you know, from WhatsApp to Zoom and Teams meetings and, you know, online therapeutic support to young people and their families. And so what we had to do in terms of adapt was we had to adapt our, our, um, our infrastructure to be able to accommodate that and give our colleagues the tools in which to maintain some contact, not as good as face-to-face, but some contact with those who needed us most. And and what I'm delighted about in that experience, you know, they say through adversity comes some fantastic learning. I think in a few months, we adapted and embraced technology in a way that otherwise would have taken us years to do and learned a great deal from it. It didn't work in every instance. You know, we were highly innovative. The thing about working with vulnerable children is that if you already have an established relationship of trust, you can more easily switch to a digital kind of connection and, and, and young people will warm to that. But if there are new referrals, people who are going into vulnerability during COVID have never had a personal connection with somebody and then you ask them to cope online, it doesn't work as well. But you know, we've tried our best. We've developed new innovative solutions. We've got uh, you know, some of our services have gone wholly online now. So we have a, a family center. We, you know, we run about 70 of these around the country, but we now have a virtual family center as well, which provides resources all over the country. Great learning, required investment. Unfortunately, because fundraising was curtailed, we didn't have the resources that we would have wanted to put into that in, in, in peacetime. So we're trying to influence the government to set up a digital innovation fund for charities to be able to invest and develop our services even more and the IP controlled by government so it can be shared with everyone and, and so on. So we've, we've adapted. However, even that isn't enough because this year we estimate we're going to lose around 50 million pounds of income that we would have expected to spend on children and young people. And we can't recover that. And so that means we've lent into our reserves and the reserves, you know, you can only use once when they're gone, they're gone. So what we are now doing is reconfiguring our uh, strategic direction. In the next few years, we're going to have to narrow our focus. We're going to have to do less, but what we are doing, we will do well. That will allow us to shave about 20 million pounds off our operating costs, which within three years then will help us stabilize our finances. Now, I say that with a little bit of trepidation because it's all dependent on how long the pandemic goes on for. Jamie, thanks for that readout. Um, it's, it's some tough decisions you, you've had to make there. Simon, let me turn to you. Very different organization in very different circumstances, but I guess there's also been an earthquake that's gone through DLA. You've had to think about your people, think about how you run the organization differently. And I'm interested in what you think about 2021. Are you fearful? Are you, are you hopeful? Well, firstly, let me just say that all kudos and respect to Javid and his team and the people at Bernardes for the fabulous job they do. I'm certainly not comparing anything we do to that. And I just want to give my respect for that. But I think I am hopeful. I mean, it, it was interesting just listening to, to Javid speak because our experience was a little bit different. My personal experience was a little bit different only because a couple of years earlier, we had gone through a very unfortunate event of being caught in the NotPetya cyber attack. And I said to someone the other day, I was talking to someone that dealing with corona as a business was not as challenging, if you can believe that, as having a cyber attack. Why would that the case because it also goes to the heart of your business and your ability to communicate your technology but the difference is when you walk out of the door in the morning the cloud is only over your head whereas the one thing our organization found was in corona and i'm terrible terrible thing that's happened in the world but of course everyone was going through it together so so that's just something in terms of a learning you know we had and adapted that way that has fed through to the answer to your question really which is how do we feel about the future? Well, post that cyber, we went through a whole rewriting of our business in terms of looking at ourselves, our culture, our values, very much trying to become much more of a values-led business. We already were involved with a lot of organizations around the world, that, particularly around actually children as well, slightly different to Java, but things like children who are part of penal systems around the world where they shouldn't be trying to help them with that. And so that had helped us get through corona and i think therefore when we've done our regular people engagement surveys which we've done all the way through every few weeks we do an engagement survey where people anonymously say how they feel generally the dominant emotion has been 
hopeful and it's all been positive. People are stressed. They do get worried about the future of financials. But, you know, we said at the outset to our people, we were not going to make people redundant or lose jobs unless we were forced to. The partners must take the hit for this. And that is exactly what's happened. We will take a financial hit, but we have not needed to do that. We didn't need to at least any furlough money we had. We returned to the government. We paid our tax bill. I think there's a certain values led thing that businesses have to do. And that carries through James, into how your people feel about the world, which is broadly hopeful for next year. So we are. I would say, however, the one last thing I would say on this is I think we have to be cautious. I sit on lots of city institutions and listen to lots of briefings from the governor, the Bank of England and others, the chancellor. And if a vaccine is coming along, which looks like we have that good news, and the world returns to normal, starts to even at Easter, from an economic point of view, I think we have at least another year to get back to normal and then very many more years after that to start recovering from paying for the debt. So I am hopeful, but I don't think we should underestimate the challenge ahead. Simon, I'm interested about, as you look forward, the shape of the firm. Law firms are known for those big sunk costs, long leases and so on. You now, from having everyone in the office looking at each other in all of these cities around the world, being a very, very dispersed workforce. So how does that look going ahead? And how do you make sure these people are still looking up to you as the boss? So it's going to be an interesting challenge for any business, including something as large scale and broad as ours across the world. For this reason, there is no doubt the shape of how people will work will change. I don't think it will change so dramatically that people will never be in an office together again. But there is no doubt that in all our offices, we will have, and indeed we have introduced a formal policy forever now going forward where people can work half of their week from home. And so we will have people coming in and out of the office. They call it hoteling where you are basically coming in and out of the office, you know, from time to time or whatever. Now, that inevitably means you have to look at your office space, how much of it you need and how you use it, because office space anywhere in the world is hugely expensive for any business. It's a fixed cost and you don't really want to have it just sitting around empty. So I think all businesses, including ours, will definitely look at how we use our space. We are putting all our resources around the world, all our IT into the cloud. That's pretty normal now for larger organizations so people can work anytime, any place. But the reason I said it's a tricky balance is because, and it, and it comes to your question of how do people think, well, I'm the boss. It's not just about that. It's about how do people interact with each other at all. There is a, a psychologist was telling me the other day that there's a really interesting human emotion called eudaimonia it's a great word which is the happiness you feel when you interact you actually personally interact or meet other people who you like which is how people feel about their work colleagues often not always of course but often and the reality is that's what we're losing at the moment i have a lot of people you know particularly in their 20s living in small accommodation somewhere they actually like and want to be in the office so we will have to balance it we will definitely adjust the shape of our business going forward but make no bones about it the office and interaction human interaction not by zoom or skype or teams human interaction is hugely important to the health and well-being of our people and that's something we need to look at because i may say one last thing i don't know if javed you would agree with this but for our people the biggest issue is not actually money per se it's not about of course it is about whether they have a job but the biggest single issue is about that for us as a business is their health and well-being i think over cyber over anything else you can think of i think it's one of the biggest threats to businesses out there now it's a really interesting point you make simon we just recently be doing some data crunching because worrying about the emotional health and well-being of our colleagues you know where especially when lots of people are on furlough and those who aren't on furlough are having to work twice as hard and as you say losing the personal touch with other colleagues has an effect and so the the anecdotal messages that we were getting was that people are uh, suffering emotional challenges much more than before Colleagues were not taking leave as much as they used to. Uh, sickness levels were increasing and so on. And we did some research. Actually, the data that came to us doesn't support any of that. But anecdotally, that's what everybody is talking about. Uh, it's really interesting. And I, I read an article the other day in one of the third sector journals where uh, a psychologist is writing and saying that, that there is this feeling out there in all walks of life that people are suffering more because of COVID in these ways. But she argues that actually, no, people are working hard and they're tired and they're equating 
hard work and tiredness with mental strain and all the rest of it. And actually, the evidence isn't there to back it up. I found that fascinating. I also was surprised by our results. Actually, I don't know if you've done anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested, actually. That, that does surprise me a little bit. So I definitely agree with the comment that I think people are working harder. Yeah, the idea that at home, people, that the work-life separation has completely disappeared for most people. So, you know, you just pop back in at your computer after dinner or whatever, you know, when people would have left something behind, even with the advent of mobile technology. Um, interestingly, our data shows, so I think you're right. I, I, impossible for us to know whether people are truly feeling stressed or just burnt out or fearful or whatever. But, but certainly this data we have, both from the anonymous surveys and the actual HR data we have, for example, definitely shows that we were struggling to get people to take holidays, for example. And we effectively had to say to people, you must take holidays, not because we were, we were somehow trying to get some financial gain, just because we were so worried about people not taking time off and that work-life balance. I think the other, and this is anecdotal data, but the other data we seem to have, though, is there is definitely an age divide here. Because if you've been used to commuting, you live in a reasonably nice house with a garden, uh, you maybe don't get to see your partner. You don't always get to see your kids ordinarily. People have actually responded very positively to that being a result of lockdown, that they get to change all of the things. Whereas we, we do also know we do have a lot of younger people who really are finding it very hard and feel quite isolated and are, are struggling more with it, I think. So I don't know whether you've seen any of that, Jabba, but that's probably we've seen that more. I think we've gone through two phases. Certainly the first half of the year, the, the messages I was getting back, particularly from our younger staff, was that when can we get back in? For all the reasons you've just said, right? You know, they need to need to connect. And some of them, you know, are living in a sort of, you know, seventh floor of a tower block in a flat and so on and don't have the garden and the, you know, the extended family to occupy them. However, in the second phase, and what I've been doing more recently is a number of what we call learning cafes. So I've been meeting for about 45 minutes with, say, eight or 10 recent recruits. So these are people who have come in during COVID and, you know, I've switched to in instantly to Zoom and team meetings and so on. And, and, and young and old for all, in all kinds of parts of the, the charity and asking them this question, how have they adapted? How does it feel? And all of them more or less have said, well, the arrival was difficult because induction is never the same, you know, when you do it on a screen and that kind of thing, and they haven't been able to meet their managers and colleagues. Yet, I've noticed a distinct difference from the first half to the second half that they are finding their feet now in ways of working and getting their work-life balance adjusted in a way that actually suits them. Whereas before people were moaning about it, complaining about it, and desperately trying to find a way back in, now they are maybe resigned to the fact that this is going to be for the for the for the long haul and they need to find ways of adjusting mentally and physically now i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing time will tell pick up on what you were saying earlier about you know you switched to say half the time in the office we are actually seriously planning now to reduce our offices per se across the whole of the uk unless there are frontline services in those buildings, which we will not stop, of course, but where there are pure offices, wherever possible, we're going to close them down. It's going to save us money, travel costs, all that kind of you know, commuting and whatnot, but we are going to replace it with a, a kind of blended offer where people, by and large, will in their contracts, it will say they can work from anywhere. But once a week or once every two weeks or what, there will be places where they can go to socialize and to have key meetings that can't happen any other way. Now, the buildings that we use may not belong to us. Then we may only be using them for one day a week. And the other four days, it could be another four charities who are in turn taking over the building and doing what they need to do for themselves and sharing the costs. I think that's the way it's going to go for us as long as our technology enables it as long as our service offer you know doesn't suffer you know that we can maintain the quality and so on and and i'm quite heartened that not everybody but the most of our staff seem to be accepting this message much easier than i might have ever expected it's very interesting javid it almost seems like you you're what well, you've talked about taking the 20 million of costs out you're being forced to rethink what a, a scale charity a modern charity looks like and does and owns and how it functions 
Uh, absolutely right. Yeah, it's a root and branch review. And one of the things we're driven by, of course, you know, as I said, uh, delivering our frontline services has got to be the priority. But the next thing is looking after our people and trying to minimize job losses in every which way we can. So that demands that we save money in every other way. We're going to have to do some stuff that otherwise we wouldn't have wanted to do, you know, the buildings and the so on and all of that, because it's going to allow us to maintain the employment for our people. Simon, I suppose the challenge you talk about looking after your people and so on, and the challenge I think in your industry has always been legal has very much been full on. There's some pieces of work that just seem to, the client demands things like all-nighters or whatever. And as a result, you have what I would call the release culture. There are still examples of not necessarily great behavior, few drinks after work, that sort of thing. And I suppose it's really quite hard for you to push it on from that because you have to be there for the client. It is true. I mean, there's certainly things you can do. I mean, there's no doubt that I'm in a, a sector where it is, of course, I mean, all sectors in some ways are customer or client-driven, but the clients are often paying in large global law firms significant amounts of money for transactions that have a significant effect on the future of their businesses, whether that's doing a transaction or buying or selling something or being in a litigation or whatever it happens to be. And you have to be there for them. Now, what I would say is I do think the relationship between lawyers and clients has changed over the 30 years I've been in this uh, business. I think clients are also try very hard to be respectful and do the right thing and make sure people aren't working ludicrous hours, you know, if they can avoid it. So I think that's helped. All of that said, and I think the way we've built businesses more in large law firms is to try and avoid some of that. Technology helps. Being able to work remotely helps, of course. You know, when I started, whenever I had to do something, I had to be in the office to do it. So that's all helped. All of that said, there is no doubt I think our industry still has some way to go to get the balance right. And I am actually hoping in a perverse sort of way that the advent of something as horrible as corona will help us reset a little bit our priorities in in this industry. I do think there was always an element of, maybe not quite like some industries in the city, but there was an element of machismo about working long hours or doing an all night or whatever. And we, and we are trying hard and indeed must take that level of machismo and kudos out of those things. If anything, we should be looking at them and saying, well, actually, there are things you have to only do in the extreme and we don't want you doing them if we can do them. So I do think all big law firms and in fact, all city institutions are trying hard, but we've certainly got to be more rigorous about it because we're not there yet. I would agree with that. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll go back to the conversation shortly, but first is Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown on leaders' broader responsibility to society at large. We have a charity of the year that is selected by all of our associates in the UK, and it's a huge part of the culture of our organisation. And it's part of the culture because, number one, about giving back to our communities, but also, secondly, every single person who gets involved across the business takes and learns something from the engagement with our charity of the year, no matter what charity it may be. And they learn something because not just around what that charity is doing, they learn something around the individuals they meet within those charities, and they learn also about themselves, to me and to all of our associates. It is one of the most important things that we have in the business, and it's been hugely successful, and I'm very, very proud of what we've achieved. Javid, if I can come back to you, um, I want to come back a little on two points, two very topical points, partly about impact, really. Has the government done enough to help you out, to help the sector out? And then secondly, I'm fascinated by your view on the Marcus Rashford effect. It's a very different sort of leadership, very, very helpful to the cause. I'm wondering if you feel at all a scintilla of thought that what he's doing is, is stealing your thunder, or is that not the way people think? <laughs> uh, first, firstly, on the government. Then, I mean, gosh, who who would want to be the prime minister or uh, you know the the uh, secretary of state for health and social care at the moment? They they're on a hiding to nothing. There is there is no perfect answer to what we've faced over the last nine months. I think so. I, I wouldn't particularly blame the government. I think you know, in many ways, they've done as good as any government 
could do. There are, uh, in hindsight, you know, you could say there's various actions they've taken. They could have taken in a different way, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. I certainly wouldn't want that job. I think they're trying their best. I think the money that they've plowed into the response, you know, in terms of the furlough scheme and in our case, allowing charities to be part of that was a lifeline that we desperately, desperately needed. So, you know, we've managed to draw down between 15 and 18 million pounds of support from the government one way or another, which has been absolutely critical. And even in spite of that, we we stand to lose 50 million this year. So it could have been even worse without government support. So credit to them, we're due. I think there are other things that, you know, it's not for me to comment on, but all this test and trace and, you know, all that kind of expenditure that's gone on there and whether it's been spent wisely or not, you know, is, is debatable. But as far as their support for us has been, uh, it's been there to some extent. I hope that in the next version of support that they remember that charities are the lifeline for the most vulnerable in this country. I mean, I think the modern charity provides the glue that holds communities together at the most difficult time. And it doesn't get much more difficult now than now. Take that glue away and society just begins to disintegrate. And the most vulnerable usually suffer the most at the most difficult times. And it's charities that have that trust with communities. Now, the second bit, Marcus Rashford, I mean, you know, perhaps he should be the prime minister. He <laughs> certainly got the support in the community. You know, talk about people power. And, and Javid, can I just ask you, would you put Boris Johnson at the forward line at Man United? <laughs> I don't think that he would uh, qualify for that. I'm a Man United supporter as well. And <laughs> I think I might stop supporting them if that would happen. But M- Marcus is a phenomenon in his own right. He is the epitome of authenticity in the voice that he has brought, you know, in terms of food poverty in this country. It's been a hugely refreshing voice that somebody, you know, who is doing it for the right reasons and actually being brave and being bold and making the rest of us stand up and listen. Now, he's got a charity of his own. He's working with charities. I don't see his voice as competing in any way whatsoever with any of the kind of charities like ours or or any others. I think it's complimentary. I think, you know, I would applaud him and I'd encourage him to carry on speaking because in many ways, he has traction where the rest of us don't. And we've seen that twice already where the government has changed its decision on food poverty because of my, Marcus's intervention. So more, more, more of it, I would encourage him. And Javid, can I ask you a, just a, something you said, which I'd be interested to know. So obviously, I'm in a different type of business. But one of the things I think has frustrated us more, and I agree with you, it's not easy for any government around the world to deal with this. And I've watched governments in lots of different countries because we're in 40 different countries. But some of them have been more consistent in setting out a plan and sticking with it. And and I mean this not as a specific criticism, but I know one of the things that makes it has found it, we found it difficult is where the rules just keep changing and we keep having to adapt and we're not sure if our office is open or closed or what we're telling our people. And I just wondered whether that lack of consistency always has affected you in the way that it maybe has caused so much frustration to other types of businesses. Well, you make an excellent point. It has affected us because we're a four nations charity and with the devolved assemblies, you know, each part of this four kind of uh, part uh, UK is making its own decisions about what can open, what can't open. So if you just think about our 710 retail stores, at the moment they're closed in England, they're open partly in Scotland, they're open fully in Wales, and they're about to close on Friday in Northern Ireland. And so logistically to manage that and the inflow and outflow of our people and furloughs and not furloughs and trying to calculate the income. And remember, we're a charity at the end of the day. 92 pence of everything we earn gets spent on the front line. It's only 8p that pays for all of the the infrastructure and the governance. So we don't have the resources really that industry might have in some cases, you know, to do the, the financial analysis and the modeling, you know, to a very high degree. So it becomes almost impossible to manage it with any great certainty. It's unpredictable in its nature anyway. But then when you're at the helm of a charity like this, where everybody's looking up to you, you know, to to give them the confidence that we can cope, that we will recover, that we'll maintain our focus, and to add a human touch to it, when actually you haven't got all the tools and resources that you need to be able to cope with this, it makes it triply difficult. So I think consistency, you know, you make a great point. Of course, we want consistency, but the unpredictable nature of what we're dealing with in a four nations devolved governance model, I'm not sure how they could do it any better. 
I, I think that's probably right. Although I, I have a sneaking suspicion without getting overly political that there are, you know, unfortunately, it seems to be hard to divorce politicians from being political. And I do think there are elements of being political in this. And I, I understand that's part of the game, except I would say maybe now is the time, you know, to find a way of coming together. I certainly hope they can do it over the upcoming holiday period, for example. Something you said earlier, Simon, about not just worrying about today, but the fact that this could go on for another year, even with you know all these vaccines, and then many, many years after that of paying for it. I think that's a really, really important point that uh, you know we can look forward to the next five or 10 years of austerity in various forms, I think, to pay back for all of these billions and billions of pounds of expenditure now. It's inevitable. You know, the books have to balance. Now, what will happen in that 10-year in that period is what we really need to worry about, I would say. The most vulnerable are going to suffer in a way that this country, I think, has not seen before. I think this is where the politics come in, whether the state is going to take responsibility for that suffering or not. I predict that a, a perfect storm is coming our way where the demand for the most vulnerable is going to, as I say, skyrocket. We're already seeing it and it's going to peak at levels never seen before in peacetime. And the resources will not be there to respond. And normally what happens in, in this great country of ours, when the state can't provide the support, the charity sector steps in and uses all of its guile and all of its resources to plug the gap. Well, we're not going to be able to do that because our income is dependent on Great people like DLA and other, you know, industry champions and Joe Public who give their five pounds a month to give us the income to be able to spend. Well, people are not going to be able to give that money because they won't have the confidence in their own livelihoods, their own sustainability. So our income will drop whilst demand is rising. The state won't be able to fund it because of austerity and the perfect storm swirls around again and again and again. And a whole generation of young people in particular is going to suffer in a way that I don't think any of the analysts have predicted yet. Uh, and by the way, sorry, just to make one thing, which might link to the question you're going to ask me, I'm not sure, but the future, you talked about how we as a business would model the future. I sincerely hope governments on, a, on an international scale, not just on a national by national scale, are thinking about how this links again to the uh, links to the future. Because if for example, you're going to have fewer people working from offices in city centres. That has an effect on the whole city infrastructure of sandwich shops and coffee and restaurants. So, the, you know, when you put in fiscal measures to deal paying this back, you've got to think about all of these things, not do it on a binary basis. It's got to be joined up. I was going to ask about politics, Simon, but it's kind of, I suppose it's kind of the career politics, if you like. And I just wanted to wind back the clock for both of you and, and just explain a little about how you got where you, you both are today to be tackling these big issues. Uh, Simon, I always think the interesting thing with law firms is the boss is elected. So it's this wonderful democracy where the partners need to approve the cut of your jib for you to um, you know, be speaking for them and be on podcasts like this. But actually, for the boss, you were quite a, a late joiner, if you like. DLA to Rewind was created by this enormous three-way merger in 2005. But more importantly that year, you, you and your team and se several other partners were poached from Denton Wild Sapped to join the firm. And then within a decade, you're running it. So I'm curious about the speed and a little bit about culture, because um, you've really had to, you've, you've seen and helped to knit together these all these firms from all, all the way around the world. And um, I wonder if, if it helped for you to scale the organization by coming in as something of an outsider. Thank you for that. I mean, I, look, I think it did to some extent. I mean, the flippant answer, of course, is, you know, if you're the last man standing or last woman standing, because who wants to do this job? But I did, I have to say, I, I thought it was and think it is a privilege. I think being the outsider definitely helped. I mean, the, my, my background is that I was worked at two other different law firms and, and I had been a partner at both of those and I was uh, an intellectual property litigator. Most of my practice was in the world of media and sport either working for big studios or big sporting organizations or whatever. And I think probably I was a little bit left field. I mean, I came into DLA Piper with a team of 50 people to build this global group. And so on one level, I was a very new thing. And it was something that DLA Piper had not focused on quite as much. It was a new start. I came to the executive late. I was a global group head here and I joined the executive only two years before I became the managing partner and the global co-CEO. And in truth, you're right. You do have to 
stand. It's a little bit like a presidential or prime minister election, maybe bad analogies right now, but I did. And, and I guess you have to make people believe a vision. I just, because I'd come from the outside, I had the ability, I think, to look at things and see what was right about them, but what was wrong about them. And I think the people who had run the firm had been here for a very long period of time, done a fabulous job, but it's always hard to see whether your own child, the faults in your own child. I have to tell you, I've got three of them and I know what all of their faults are. If they ever listen to this. And the reality is that I think it gave me the ability, if you can come from the outside and look in, sometimes you can really see where the fault lines are and how to remedy them with a big proviso for all those future CEOs who plan to do it out there. You can never be overcritical of the past. If you're disrespectful of what's been done in the past, people people will feel disrespected in the organization. You have to recognize the wonderful things they've done, and then you have to say how you can build on it. And there's quite a diplomatic job to do to run a, 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 what I would call a partnership firm, whether it's in accounting or legal or management consulting. And I can only guess that, that dealing with, I mean, I hear there are quite big egos in the media world and the sports world. I wonder if those experiences have helped you keep all the partners happy since you were elected in 2015. I think it helped in this. I mean, I started out working out for pop stars like the Beatles and Elton John, I mean, a long time ago. So you are right that there's a big communication job. And the communication job, I've always said the job of a managing partner in a professional services firms of any kind, there really only are two things you do. One is you manage the finances. And the second is you manage what I call the equilibrium of the firm. You've got a lot of highly motivated people who are very ambitious, quite rightly, at all levels, not just the partners and not just the lawyers. We have lots of fabulous business service people. And you have to manage that equilibrium. And certainly, I think the background of the job I did when I worked a lot of, particularly in the media industry, it is true that you're dealing with people who have very strong opinions of their worth. And and so it probably helped a little. I think it also helps that you can probably hear from now, I like the sound of my own voice. I'm a bit of a lovey. So the fact that I'm happy to go on the road, when I was allowed to go on the road, I traveled a lot and love to do town halls and talk to people. And I'm quite a nosy person, really. All those things help. I think you cannot be an introvert and be a success in a professional services firm as the CEO or managing partner, for sure. Javid, your background in education as a teacher first, then at college, and then working at councils in Birmingham, and then and then Harrow, and then briefly in the civil service, and then as of 2010, you're a, you're a CEO of Victim Support. I mean, I hesitate to say that was always the plan, but did you quite fancy being in charge of something? <laughs> no, quite the opposite, actually. I mean, uh, one of the things I've learned in in my 35 year career, you know, where I've kind of worked for five different sectors and. 10 posts and seven employers and so on is that no career plan is worth the paper is written on actually <laughs> certainly my life would tell you that and that's what i tell young people as well don't get too hooked up on trying to chalk it all out because it isn't going to work like that and it's going to get even more complex in the future so uh, i mean i had no such plans and part of it is in my dna you know i mean i, I have a very humble background i mean i was born to kashmiri immigrants you know came over in the 1950s both my parents were totally literate in any language never been touched by the magic wand of education and so on and so when i stumbled through my schooling and you know uh, scraped a degree in maths and so on went on to teach it simply having a job a professional job and an income of relative significance to my extended family was a huge privilege. I mean, you know, I kept having to pinch myself that I'd actually got that kind of job rather than worked in the local factory sweeping floors, which is what my father, bless him, God rest his soul, did for all of his life. So, so it was a huge privilege. And what that taught me was to stay grounded throughout all of my career, really be hugely grateful for the opportunity I've got, put 110% in, into everything I do, and not worry at all about what comes tomorrow. Because it's not my, it's not in our control anyway. I'm very spiritual about that sort of thing. There's a greater power that decides what's going to happen. But you are in control of the effort that you put in, the values that you live by, the support that you give to other people. And throughout my career, there's been this theme of trying to you know, without trying to sound too grand, but trying to make a difference to society. Because when you, you know, my mother, my mother, bless her now, was in her late 70s, you know, she obviously can't read or write, speaks broken English. We still sit with her, read her doctor's letters to her, accompany her to, you know, appointments and so on and all of that. That's a great leveler. 
actually, when on the one hand, I might be sitting at Downing Street, you know, advising the government on something to do with children's policy or on you know, doing fantastic things like this with you or on the news and then sitting with your mom explaining what the doctor's letter means to her is a great balancer, I think, and reminds me why I do what I do and the choices I've made, which is to try and make a difference in my own small way. Two things I'm curious about, because you had been, you had very senior jobs, you know, you know, directors at Harrow and so on. What were the skills that were lacking that you needed to pick up when you got the job either in 2010 at uh, Victim Support or when you joined Bernardas in 2014? And then I think secondly, I'm interested in, in the point around, you know, racism. I mean, I'm curious if you've encountered that when you've been a CEO. So the 2010 shift was totally unexpected. So I was leaving a sector that I'd spent 10 years in, which is local government. And it wasn't the first time I shifted because before that, 15 years in frontline education. So I, you know, I've been doing this already. But the shift was totally different because I was suddenly in the voluntary sector, which was not part of the game plan at all. And the biggest shift, I think, biggest learning for me was that where I had previous 25 years had worked in organizations where if you were somewhere near the top, you know, you you pulled the odd lever here. And at some point, most of the time, something would happen at the end of the chain. People would do stuff because you asked for it. Voluntary sector doesn't work like that. If ever there was a sector that is built on hearts and minds, that is about inspiring people to do something different, then this is it. Another way of, uh, you know, to coin a phrase is to lead without authority. You know, in Bernardo's, for example, you know, we've got 14,000 volunteers, almost double the number of paid staff that we've got. They don't come and volunteer for us because I tell them to, or anybody can bind them in with a contract. They come because they believe in the cause and they need to be inspired and they need to be looked after. They need to have confidence in anything I say or do, because if they don't, they just walk away. That's the big learning for me over the last 10 years in the voluntary sector about how do you inspire people to be part of your journey when actually the rewards that they're going to get, you know, the, the financial rewards and otherwise, you know, are very, very piecemeal. It's all about job satisfaction. And that takes a different skill set, I think, to what I'd done in the public sector before. Do you know, Jebba, though, it's interesting listening to you. So I've never worked in the public sector, though. I'm sort of involved in education because I sit on the board of the Office for Students, which is the university regulator. So I get, get involved in education that way. But so I've only ever worked, though, in the private sector. But it's interesting. I think everything you said is spot on. What I would say that has changed in the private sector, though, the commercial sector over the past 30 years that I've been in it, is that it's starting to get a little bit, not the same, but just a little bit like what you've just explained, how you have to deal with people now. Because of the way society has changed, the way people have grown up and what younger people want out of their lives today, actually the ability to say you get a promotion or get a pay rise alone often doesn't attract the best and brightest young people to stay with you without offering something more. And actually, having a values-driven business, you know, doing things that they can associate with, being a sort of organization that they feel proud to talk about as opposed to they maybe don't feel is what they believe in, is really becoming more and more relevant. Whereas I would say 30 years ago, it absolutely wasn't like that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And, you know, a lot of the friends I've got in business and industry like yourselves, you know, are saying exactly the same thing. Uh, I just think the voluntary sector has always been like this. One thing I have on, and I think why it's been fascinating to get in these podcast series, sometimes profit and not-for-profit leaders together, is I do think there's a coming together, as Simon says, there's much more sort of values-driven, how do we have a broader impact on society that companies are thinking about. And I think actually charities, obviously, you have your cause and your purpose, which is front and centre, but you also have this huge retail estate that powers all the good works that you do. And I, I do think increasingly charity CEOs have to think in very, very very commercial terms. Yeah, well, essentially, on, on the one hand, you know, Bernardo's is a 300 million pound charity, but actually has to run with all of the checks and balances and uh, rigor that a business would have to operate because we're accountable for every penny that we spend. There's a charity commission and so on. I've got a board of trustees who are of the ilk of Simon, you know, that caliber of people. And they know a thing or two about running big, complex businesses. And so we have to do that. It's the cause that brings us back to why we are a charity and not a business the cause you know we don't have shareholders we're not about profit 
our outcomes are in transforming the lives of vulnerable children and trying to measure that. Your other question, really good question about racism. I mean, it's a very topical subject in 2020, you know, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and so on. And, and I've been on record as saying that any chief executive, head of any organization that thinks or, or doesn't understand that the world has changed this year is uh, mistaken. Because I think we now are listening and hearing the voices of black colleagues in a way that they never had a voice before. And we need to listen really hard and do things differently. My own experience over the 35 years is, uh, you know, you said, have I experienced racism? Many, many times. So, you know, I've got the bruises. I've survived by one way or another as a result of it. Uh, in terms of being at the top of an organization the last 10 years, different organizations, what have I faced? I would say it's much more about covert behaviors rather than overt racism. It's more about microaggressions. You know, there are things that individually people might say or a look or a behavior or an invitation or not to something around a table that on face value may seem pretty innocent, but actually there is something more behind it. And it's quite hard to uh, to speak about these things. And that's what this year, I think, is teaching a lot of organizations to understand that racism manifests itself in many ways. And microaggressions are just as serious and need to be spotted. Most organizations ignore them. We in Bernardo's have made a very public commitment about six months ago when the Black Lives Matter movement you know, was really all around us. And we made five commitments to be an anti-racist organization. One of them was to listen to our black staff more than we've listened in the past. So, you know, a whole kind of orchestrated ways of doing that. Uh, two was to invest in our own learning, right from the board of trustees to the senior leadership team, all the way through the charity, we hired an external uh, organization, brilliant organization that is now cascading that throughout. Bernardo's over a thousand people have already gone through that. We're talking about issues like white privilege, white fragility, how to lead an anti-racist organization, how to spot microaggressions and what our responsibilities are and that. So this is our commitment to trying to say, well, you know, this is bold and it's brave. There's no going back. We want to get better at this and be an anti-racist organization. But it doesn't come without its challenges and problems. So we have been challenged. You know, people have said, well, hang on, why are you doing this? You're, right? You're a children's charity. Get on with supporting vulnerable children. Why are you getting into this kind of modern PR speak? And those are some of the accusations. But we are robust. Our board of trustees is absolutely committed to doing this in the best interests of providing better services for the most vulnerable in modern day Britain, which is very diverse now. Simon, to go back to the moment when you were put in charge, and I'm interested in those skills that you didn't have. I mean, it's great to be an extrovert, I, I, I'm sure. And I can only imagine eight extroverts sat around uh, Javid's boardroom table. But um, <laughs> what, what, what were you missing when uh, you became co-CEO? I'm going to answer that. I'm just laughing because one day, James, you have to do a, a podcast on CEOs' views of boards and boards of CEOs. <laughs> you know, that relationship is a whole special thing of itself. Um, anyway, moving moving back to that. Um, oh, gosh. I mean, I was missing lots of things. I mean, first, I was missing just tons of experience about the com running a complex business. Of course, I've been involved in the business. I've been on the executive. But only when you get to have to be responsible for all of it do you get involved in the sheer complex nature of it and, and the way law firms are regulated across jurisdictions does mean that often the structures and the financial structures are very complicated. I was certainly missing that. I think I was missing, let me say the single most important thing I missed was understanding the effect that you can have as a leader of a business for good or bad. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example of that. Very, very early on, I was walking down to the coffee point and I walked past my uh, PA, Lynn, who's been with me for 23 years now and probably deserves a medal, and some of the other people. And I went to myself a cup of coffee and I was thinking about my son at the 24 now, but my son at the time was applying for universities and working out where he wanted to go. And I was just really deep in thought about that and the dilemmas he was facing. And I went back into my office, I sat at my desk and Lynn came in and she said to me, is everything okay with the business? And I said, why? And she said, well, a number of people have noticed how worried you look. And, you know, they're just thinking maybe there's a problem. And of course, I wasn't even thinking about the business. And I had it where occasionally I made flippant comments to people publicly. And I found those comments coming back a week later via different routes. 
So I learned that unfortunately or fortunately, because you can use it both in a bad and a good way, what, however you behave, however you look, whatever you say has a big effect on the business as a whole. And I think that's possibly the single most important thing, along with, of course, listening and communicating. But you have to realize the effect you now have. People look up to you. Yeah, I, I can relate to that, Simon. It's a great example of, you know, every twitch of the eyebrow, every cough at the wrong time, you know, people interpret something into it. Yeah, they do. They think it's about them and not about you and your personal life and what you're worrying about. This is why it's the best that we're doing this remotely, because I think I can only imagine what your body language will be giving away right now, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you both um, on the point on mentorship? I'm interested in who helped you along the way, you know, to take some of those big decisions or maybe people that you you can switch off with and give you the informal coaching behind the scenes now i mean whatever i talk about today or do and ever how you know badly i do it and so on i've nicked the very best from a whole range of people over my career and i've had the privilege of rubbing shoulders with some amazing amazing people so you know and i am very good at nicking their best ideas right so and then making them my own as it were but uh, right at the top of the tree i would put uh, professor tim brighouse who was uh, director of education at Birmingham City Council. He appointed me as an assistant director. And this guy ran Birmingham's education services for 10 years and took them from rock bottom performance to the best in the country when he left. And he was hugely inspiring. And, and, and I remember times when I was with him at close quarters. So there was a guy called David Blunkett, who was Secretary of State for Education at that time, you might remember in the Blair years. And I remember sitting with, with Tim and, and Dave Blunkett in Whitehall and, and Tim advising him, guiding him on what the right thing to do is in local government education services. And then later that same afternoon, watching him in a primary school, sitting with a group of six-year-olds in the corner on the floor, reading to them and having them just as inspired and captured in terms of imagination as he did with the Secretary of State. And that doesn't come easy. This guy was a, uh, and still is a super brain, and still is a mentor of mine, long retired, but learned a great deal from him about humility, about the need to be able to flex in terms of your audience, about how to make every individual feel really important, and then not take yourself too seriously. Well, I'd, I mean, look, I'd agree with all of those things. And, and, and like you, Javid, I've had different people along the way to get to partnership in a law firm and get to you have to have more senior people who are your mentors or leaders I was lucky at each of my firms to have that but beyond that I think there have been a few other people you know I learn I mean it sounds maybe crazy but I learn a lot from my kids even more so now because I get a chance because they're 18 21 24 I have a maybe a better understanding of what is making them tick and therefore maybe some of the younger people in our business. Uh, I have to say I learned a lot from my wife because <laughs> she tells me all the time what I'm getting wrong. But actually, the person I probably was my biggest mentor, and he never even really realized it, and I appreciate this may sound cheesy to some people, but it's generally is my dad. You know, you're talking about backgrounds, David, and my dad left school at 14, and he worked on the docks in Hull was his job, uh, first job anyway. And I can remember, I tell people this story because I can remember about putting things in perspective. My mum and dad are both dead now, but my mum was seriously ill for a long time and needed a lot of care. My dad couldn't afford to get her that care. And so, you know, obviously I paid for that. And my dad was a very proud man and said, well, I'm not going to allow you to do this. You can't afford it. You'd have to sell the house. And I was trying to explain to him that it wouldn't happen. And eventually in frustration, I told him what I earned at the time because I'd never discussed it with my dad since I left university never asked me I never thought of raising it and he was very quick with maths and he converted it into a weekly wage because a lot of working class people in those days anyway would think of a weekly wage pay packet and he just looked at me and said why on earth would anyone pay you that amount of money <laughs> and and it was just a great lesson in humility that you know when you look now at what health service workers and nurses and carers are doing you know you've got to get a real sense of perspective here and i often say that when it comes to partner remuneration time to my partners you know and say you know in the nicest way just just let's be realistic here about how fortunate we are so my dad didn't always realize he was doing it but taught me lots of lessons about getting things in perspective and doing the right thing that i really value Javid Khan and Simon Levine, thanks so much for the conversation. Pleasure. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. 
This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternational.com slash gb slash insight. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes. If you're interested in the world of charities, check out conversations with Polly Neat from Shelter, Mike Gidney from Fairtrade, and Kate Lee from the Alzheimer's Society. That's wherever you get your podcasts, or please take a look at leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon.